The following sermon is brought to you by Cornerstone Baptist Church. For more information on our teaching and preaching ministry, visit us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. So the title of our sermon this evening, An Open Door, and this is part four in this short paragraph, Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. And uh, as you well know, in four parts now, four sermons, we've been taking some time in consideration of the Lord's address to the church at Philadelphia. And we've taken that time really for the purpose uh, of explaining several key issues that have been raised by our text. Uh, These issues aren't the main point of the text. We've hopefully uh, touched on that as we have gone through the the passage. Uh, But these issues, nevertheless, are very important, uh, namely uh, the Bible's use of types and anti-types, the Bible's use of typology in verses 7 and 8. The authors, the New Testament authors, particularly the Lord's application of Old Testament texts, we've seen how the Lord himself now has handled Old Testament prophecy or Old Testament texts in verses 7 and 8. Uh, We looked and spent some time considering the true identity of the people of God uh, from verse 9. And then lastly, uh, we looked at the presence of the church preserved or kept through rather than kept from tribulation and suffering in chapter 3, verse 10. All those issues now foundational, very important to uh, laying a foundation for a solid biblical eschatology. We're going to come back to those themes again and again as we work from Revelation 4 through Revelation 21 in the next section of text that we'll be covering. Um, these issues are going to become very important. And the more that we, we settle uh, our understanding biblically on those issues, we'll be able to build then on that good foundation uh, and have a solid biblical eschatology. We'll work through that as we get through, uh, get into chapter 4. Now, We've considered those issues, we've considered those themes uh, in the context of our passage, uh, the Lord's Address to the Church of Philadelphia, really because all of those themes have um, critical relevance, not only to, uh, the, uh, to understanding the passage that we're currently working through, but they also have critical relevance to our understanding of the book of Revelation. They become important to our understanding, our interpretation, and particularly our application of the book. Uh, We're going to find ourselves again coming back to these themes over and over again uh, and building a good uh, eschatology. So a biblical understanding of those issues uh, contribute to uh, a proper interpretation of the text, and a biblical understanding of those issues also contributes to a proper application of the text, as we'll see this evening. Both very, very important. We want to understand what the text is saying, and we want to be able to apply the text appropriately. So it's important to remember from the Lord's address uh, to the Church of Philadelphia and all seven of the churches here in Asia Minor and in the opening chapters of the book of Revelation that the Lord's address certainly has relevance to the church at Philadelphia in the first century. That goes without saying, very important to understand. And we recognize that, we acknowledge that. But this address, the address of the church at Philadelphia in the first century also has relevance to our church in the 21st century. These letters were written to representative churches in the first century with the intention of the Lord himself communicating to the church in every generation, communicating particularly to our church. Um, This letter, in other words, this letter isn't chained to an audience in the first century, and this letter isn't 
also isn't a, a mere curiosity concerned to a group of people or the church alive at the end of the age. In other words, this church, these letters written to representative churches, have relevance to the Lord's church everywhere and to the Lord's church in every age, the church militant throughout the church age in every generation, including ours. So throughout the history of the church, throughout the history of the church, the church has lived under an impending hour of trial. And that's why this particular address becomes so important, so relevant to us. We need to know how this book applies to us. And these themes help us to understand that. Briefly, turn with me to Matthew 24. Let me give you an example of that. Matthew chapter 24. In Matthew 24, we find the Lord Jesus Christ on the Mount of Olives speaking to his disciples. And he is speaking to them about the end of the age and his return. And in Matthew 24, beginning in verse 4, as the Lord speaks to his disciples of the perils that they themselves will face in the first century, He says this to them, beginning in verse 4. He says, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. Now, dispensationalists and others uh, that view... Uh, eschatology in a purely or completely futurist sense would look at texts like this and say that these things are not, uh, they're not applied to those disciples in the first century. They're not applied to the church throughout the church age. They're applied to a final seven-year period of tribulation at the very end of the age. These really, these things have no significance to us. We're not going to go through those things. We're going to be raptured. That's simply not what the text said. That's, that's, that's doing uh, a disservice to the text, mishandling the text, mis understanding the text and not applying the text, right? The text then has, you render the text of having no relevance to you if we handle the text in that way. What the Lord is saying on the Mount of Olives in Matthew 24, verse four, he's saying to disciples in the first century, they themselves will see these things come to pass. In fact, the church in every generation of the church age will see these things come to pass. And the Lord says, when you see these things come to pass, the end is not yet. The end is not yet, verse 7, for nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. All these, verse 8, are the beginnings of sorrows, literally the beginnings of birth pains, beginnings of birth pains. Uh, Every generation of the church in history, every generation, has faced its own iteration of birth pains, its own repetition of this pattern, so to speak, its own hour of trial that is coming upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. The church in every generation has faced these things. And we know well, we know well, don't we, Ralio, Catherine? We know well that birth pains increase in frequency and increase in severity until the baby is born, right? Until the end, Well, the Bible tells us that perilous times have come. Perilous times have come. Evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Each hour of trial, so to speak, in each generation, repeating the pattern until a coming, final, consummating hour of trial at the end of the age. So what does this mean then for us? 
How is this to be applied to our church in the 21st century out here in the sticks in Chuliota? How are we to understand the text? How are we to heed the text? What does this mean for us? Well, we're exhorted, but you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of. That's the point. Hold fast. The Lord Jesus Christ, the servant of Yahweh, holds the key of David. He is set before us, brothers and sisters, an open door to the kingdom that no one can shut. He's the one who opens the door. No one can shut it. Hold fast what you have that no one may take your crown. We're to endure. This is a charge to persevere, to hold fast. We've been assured of the Lord's abiding presence with his people by his spirit, even to the end of the age, we have the promise that he is not going to leave us or forsake us. And we are to persevere in the faith until the end. Steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that our work in the Lord is never in vain. We're to persevere. Now, it's certainly true, certainly true, that tribulation, this hour of trial, will continue, as birth pains do, will continue to increase in frequency and severity. Matthew chapter 24, verse 21, the Lord tells us then of a coming period of great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, (coughs) excuse me, no, nor ever shall be. Those days so severe, they're shortened for the sake of the elect. Otherwise, nobody would be saved, right? Nobody would persevere, they're so severe. So the Lord tells us that this, these, this hour of trial that we see repeated in every generation the church goes through, or the church has to be prepared to go through, those beginnings of sorrows, the beginning of birth pains, increase in frequency and severity until the coming of the end, where there is a period of great tribulation. It culminates in a great trial, a great hour of trial, coming upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. But God... God has promised to preserve his people, to keep them or to preserve them, to guard them, not by taking them out or removing them from the hour of trial, but by preserving them through the hour of trial. So this letter is not merely intended for the church at Philadelphia. Do you see? Do you see how that applies that all scripture is profitable, given, it's by inspiration of God, given for our profit for instruction, for correction, for, right? for us to profit from. This letter not merely meant or intended for Philadelphia. This letter is an encouragement to us. It's an encouragement to the Lord's church in tribulation, the church militant. What are we to do? We're to continue in the things which we have learned and been assured of. We're to hold fast what you have, Revelation 3.11. Now, <coughs> excuse me. We're not, we're not those who exegete scripture on the grounds of our own experience. And we don't, we don't do that here, but we certainly see the truth of these statements in our own generation, in our own experience, can't we? The growing contempt for God, the, gro- the growing antagonism toward the word of God in our culture today is astonishing. We see that contempt, that antagonism growing before our eyes. Seems like on a daily basis, That's by an overwhelming and increasing percentage of the population. In fact, if you read, in particular, Revelation chapter 11, uh, which we'll eventually get to, um, antagonism, many, I pray not too many years from now, uh, the antagonism 
of this world against the Lord's church is to such a degree that the church faces such persecution, such severe persecution, that the church declines almost to being gone altogether. It's as if the church has been overcome by the world. We'll study that when we get there. Severe, severe persecution, severe difficulty, growing contempt, growing antagonism. It's really, it really is unparalleled. The, the moral degradation that we see, to the degree that we see, it really is unparalleled in our day and all of human history. Beyond simply suppressing the truth in their unrighteousness, like the idolatrous uh, pagan from Romans chapter 1, it would seem as, those, as, as though those who dwell on the earth have been increasingly given over to a debased mind, filled with all unrighteousness, filled with sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness, haters of God, so that we can expect an hour of trial in every generation, an hour of trial growing increasingly worse, meant to test those who dwell on the earth. According to Romans chapter 1, that hour of trial to test those who dwell on the earth is the wrath of God presently being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. There's a present revealing of the wrath of God. For those who endure through faith in Jesus Christ, for those who keep the example of his perseverance in suffering, Revelation 3.10, the Lord gives us a precious promise. He says, I will keep you, I will preserve you, I'll hold you fast during the storm. He is with us through the trials that we face. He will never leave us nor forsake us. Again, he doesn't take us out of the suffering, but he strengthens us, matures us, and sustains us through the suffering, all for his glory and for our everlasting good. One commentator said this. He said, all this doesn't make the trial go away, but it does give us strength to bear it to go forward in the trial, to rejoice in a prison cell, to sing psalms of joy at midnight, to say in the midst of the fiery furnace, there's a fourth one who walks in the midst and loosens my bands. The same trials poured out in judgment upon unbelievers often are those that serve as tests to strengthen and mature the faith of believers. And he has promised to work all these things together for our good. He's gonna keep us through the hour of trial. So, as we conclude then our consideration of the Lord's address to Philadelphia this evening, the Lord now exhorts us in light of these things, he exhorts us, the church militant, he exhorts us to persevere, persevere. And let us lay hold of these precious promises through faith, brothers and sisters, and let us endure to the end that we might be saved. Verse 11, verse 11. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. He shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The Lord begins verse 11 with a promise of his coming. Behold, I am coming quickly. Now, by that statement, the Lord could be referring to promised help and comfort in their time of need. 
the church at Philadelphia is going to go through an hour of trial. The Lord has promised to keep them or to preserve them through the hour of trial. So this promise of his coming could be promised comfort, promised strength, promised aid in their time of need. Or this could be a reference to the Lord's second coming, his second advent, his eschatological true. And although both of those things are absolutely true, we know that from Scripture, it's better from the context to view this as a reference to the Lord's second coming at the end of the age. Okay, and there's, a, there's, a, there's an eschatological or end times reference to judgment, verse 9. Look at the context with me. Uh, eschatological reference to judgment in verse 9. There's a, there are eschatological promises given to them in verse 12. And just as the church lives with the promise of an impending hour of trial, the church also lives with the sure expectation and sure hope of the imminent return of Jesus Christ. It's the hope of the church. Behold, he is coming quickly. Jesus Christ returning for his people, and at the same time he returns for his people, he returns to pour out his judgment upon those who dwell on the earth, and the hour of trial then comes to a full and final unparalleled consummation at the end of the age. Now we see that language, behold, I am coming quickly, uh, particularly in Revelation 22. Uh, you can look there quickly or you can listen. Revelation chapter 22, verse 7. The Lord says, speaking eschatologically of his coming at the end of the age, behold, I am coming quickly. Same words. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. In Revelation 22, verse 12. Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Finally, verse 20, he who testifies of these things says, surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Right? All of those uh, statements, behold, I am coming quickly, referring to his coming at the end of the age, uh, his second coming to return in glory and to judge the wicked. And verse 20 there, that is... Uh, it's a present imperative. It literally refers to Jesus Christ being in a state of coming where the saints respond, even so be coming, they say, literally in the, in the grammar. In other words, Lord, carry out your plans in history, your redemptive plans in history, carry them out now with a view to your soon return. It's almost like they're saying, the sooner you can get that done, the sooner you're going to come back, right? Be coming. Even so, be coming, Lord Jesus Christ. His promised return produces hope in his people, doesn't it? His promised return produces in his people uh, an anticipation, a longing, an expectation. Hope to those who are suffering. Hope to those who have difficulty. Hope to those who want to be free forever from sin, Hope that God will finally judge the wicked for their, their arrogant assaults against the holiness of God. Not only do we hope for his coming, but the expectation of his coming also meant for the church to be a motivation to endure. Knowing that the Lord is to come, we are to watch and to wait. It's like the Lord is saying, keep going, keep going, keep going. Don't turn to the right or to the left persevere in the faith. I am almost there. I am coming quick, not just coming, coming quickly. Do you see? A motivation for us to persevere in the faith. And his coming at the end of the age also, again, in, involves the judgment of the wicked. 
Knowing that this is the case, what manner of people then ought we to be? How ought we to conduct ourselves? What is it that we are supposed to do? Our text addresses that, but turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 3, and let's look at an example of that very thing. 2 Peter chapter 3. Knowing this, the Lord has said, Behold, I am coming quickly. What manner of people ought we to be? 2 Peter chapter 3, look there beginning at verse 8. But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise. Here, particularly in context, it's his promise of judgment. He's not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but he is long-suffering toward us, us believers, not willing that any of us should perish, but rather that all of us should come to repentance. Do you see? But, verse 10, the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, it's going to come as a thief of the, in the night for, for those who walk in darkness. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, it should not overtake us as a thief in the night. We walk in the day. We're sons of light. We're not sons of darkness. The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise. The elements will melt with a fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Now think with me, the New Testament describes the days in which we are living as the last days. John refers to it as the last hour, right? Days that began with the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ came in his incarnation, the last days began, right? The New Testament also refers then not to just this age, but refers to the age to come, refers to the world to come. And those statements are reference to the eternal state, this age and the age to come. Those two ages, this age and the age to come, are punctuated or divided, as it were, by the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. Here we see the day of the Lord referenced in 2 Peter chapter 3. A day in which Jesus Christ comes in glory, in which Jesus Christ raises the dead, in which Jesus Christ executes judgment and renews the heavens and the earth. The day of the Lord. Verse 11, therefore, therefore, in consideration of all these things, since all these things will be dissolved, therefore, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, verse 13, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, here's our charge, be diligent. Be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless. And consider that the long-suffering, the patience of our Lord is salvation. The Lord is coming quickly. He is coming at an hour that we do not know. We are to live and to conduct ourselves in view of the imminent return of Jesus Christ the soon return of Jesus Christ. In other words, that view, that perspective, having our eyes fixed upon that day, our hearts and minds, our hope 
fixed upon that day should, how, should change how we live in this day, should embolden and inform and fuel and motivate our faith today in view of that day. Our confession refers to the reason for this. Chapter 32, article three, our confession says this. We don't know when that day is coming, right? The Lord has not told us the day or the hour. There's a reason for that. He says, as Christ would have us to be certainly persuaded that there shall be a day of judgment, both to deter all men from sin and for the greater consolation of the godly in their adversity, so will he have the day unknown to men so that they may shake off all carnal security and be always watchful because they know not at what hour the Lord will come and may ever be prepared to say, come Jesus, come quickly, be coming, amen. Look at 2 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians chapter one. The Lord would have us watchful the Lord would have us diligent. The Lord would have us expectantly waiting on his return. In 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 1, look at verse 3. Get there myself. Chapter, chapter 1, verse 3. We're bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly, and the love of every one of you all abounds toward each other. So that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure. The church in every age goes through persecution and goes through tribulation, do you see? Verse five, which is manifest evidence. That persecution, that tribulation, that suffering is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. I believe it's Paul in his letter to the church at Colossus where Paul says that we will reign with him if, if indeed we suffer together with him, right? This is uh, the church at Thessalonica counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which they suffer. Verse six, since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, when he gives you who are troubled rest, that day when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels is a day, verse eight, in which in flaming fire, he takes vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is another description of the day of the Lord. There is the hope of our future rest from trouble and tribulation, a future hope of our rest from suffering. And the church at Thessalonica is commended for her conduct, for her faithful endurance and perseverance through persecution and tribulation. The imminent return of Christ should then, for them, produce hope, a hope of that rest. And that hope should produce patient endurance in holy conduct. These things are connected. Verse nine, these, the wicked, shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes in that day, the day of the Lord, to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among those who believe because our testimony among you is believed. Now notice, in that day is the day in which they shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord. In other words, that's a day of judgment. 
And it's a day in which he comes where the saints will be glorified, or he will be glorified in his saints and admired among all those who believe. Comes for his people and comes to judge the wicked in that day. Back in Revelation 3.11, the Lord says, Behold, I am coming quickly. Therefore, knowing this to be the case, knowing this is speaking of the Lord's eschatological return at the end of the age, what ought we to be doing? He tells us, verse 11, hold fast what you have that no one may take your crown. We're to persevere in the faith. We're to persevere, hold fast. Not to compromise, not to turn to the right hand or to the left. We're to stay the course. He who endures to the end shall be saved. What is it that we're to hold fast to? What is it that we have that we're to hold fast to? A crown. (laughs) A crown. A crown here is referring to the imperishable crown that Paul exhorts us to compete for. As an athlete competes for a crown that's perishable, we for an imperishable. It's a crown of glory that does not fade away. 1 Peter 5, verse 4. A crown of life. The crown of righteousness. James chapter 1, verse 12, blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Revelation chapter 2, verse 10, a text we've looked at, be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. Hold fast, endure, persevere, that no one may take your crown. Don't shrink back under persecution. Don't shrink back under suffering. Don't become discouraged. I am coming quickly. Hold fast that no one may take your crown. It's obvious from our text that Philadelphia has already been commended for her perseverance, already commended for her endurance. Verse eight, the Lord says to them, you've kept my word. You have not denied my name. It's a good commendation. Verse 10, They have kept the example or the word of his own perseverance through suffering. They follow the Lord's example in their own suffering. A good commendation from the Lord. They've been faithful is what the Lord is saying. But now, what does the Lord do? And think with me, think with me now. They've been faithful. But now the Lord presses the church, presses the people of God up against the eschaton. He presses them up against the end of the age, presses them against the judgment seat of Christ at the last day, and he says, in view of that day, hold fast what you have. Hold fast what you have. We're to fix our gaze, Paul says, right? Second Corinthians. Fix our gaze upon eternal and unseen things in the heavenlies. We're to view life through the perspective of that day. We're to press ourselves against the eschaton of the last day. And we are to endure, holding fast what we have, knowing that he comes quickly, knowing that that day approaches. We tend to live our lives by what's right in front of our faces. If it's not right in front of my nose, I don't think about it. We live under the tyranny of the urgent. If it's on fire, we put it out and we're busy, busy putting out fires. And the Lord presses us. He presses us to think and to live with a far different perspective. We're not to live that way, brothers and sisters. We're not to live tyrannized 
by the immediate or tyrannized by the present. Many have said it's all about the journey. That's a lie. It's not about the journey. It's about the destination. (laughs) So stop making it about the journey. Make it about the destination. How you live your life in view of that day. And listen, that day will impact with significance and with power. That view, that perspective will impact your life now, your life today. The Lord Jesus Christ presses us against the age to come, presses us against the judgment seat of Christ at the end of the age, and he says, hold fast, persevere. I am coming quickly. We're not to live with that short-sighted view of life. Lord, teach us to number our days. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Turn with me to Luke 21. Luke 21. I want you to see an example of this. What is the Lord exhorting us to do? How are we to conduct ourselves? How should this Make us think about the way in which we live our Christian lives in the here and now. Luke 21, look there at verse 34. The Lord says, verse 34, but take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and cares of this life. Take heed to yourselves, lest you be tyrannized by the immediate, tyrannized by the urgent, or tyrannized by the present day, the cares of this life. Take heed to yourselves unless that day come on you unexpectedly. For that day, the day of the Lord's return, the day of judgment, that day will come as a snare on all those who dwell on the face of the whole earth. Same reference there to those who dwell on the earth. We looked at that uh, last time and uh, acknowledged from the text that the Lord is referring to lost people, right? Those who dwell on the earth, a reference in Revelation to lost people, uh, people of the world. What are we to do? Verse 36, unless that were to come on us in a snare, we don't want that to happen. Watch therefore, watch and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man, to stand approved, to stand proven and tested. Endure, the Lord says, I will preserve you. Hold fast and I will keep you through it. Live life in light of that day. Do you see? Lord preserves those who persevere. And those who persevere, persevere by God's preserving grace. It's the only reason they persevere. And God's preserving grace manifests or demonstrates its power in perseverance. You see the connection? The Lord preserves those who persevere. Those who persevere, persevere by God's grace. And God's preserving grace manifests itself in perseverance. It's God's sovereignty and man's responsibility working intimately together, as it were, for our preservation. Exhort one another to daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. You see, if we hold fast. Now in Revelation 3, 
The one who holds fast to the end is an overcomer. It's another way of describing the overcomer. The overcomer is the one who holds fast to the end. Look at verse 12. He who overcomes, in other words, to the one who holds fast, to the one who does not deny my name, he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. All of these blessings are given to us in union with, our, in union with Jesus Christ. In other words, these are blessings that flow to us through our identification with Jesus Christ. The Lord says, I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes out of, out of heaven from my God. I will write on him my new name. All the same name, all referencing uh, our identity with the Lord Jesus Christ. Once, brothers and sisters, we were without Christ. Do you remember? Aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in this world, now brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ says, you're mine. You're mine. The Jews may have excommunicated you from the synagogue. They may presume to have shut the doors of the kingdom to you. They may have presumed to prevent you from entering in. Whereas the Lord says, I have set before you an open door that no one can shut. I will make you a pillar in the temple of my God. In other words, there's not going to be going out anymore. A pillar presumes a permanence, permanence. Everything in this life, everything in this age is transitory. I'm going to make you a pillar in the temple of my God. We're going to talk about the temple of God in the new Jerusalem as we work through the book of Revelation. We'll do that at another time. The Lord says, I'm going to make you a pillar in that temple. You shall go out no more. I have established you in permanence. Your enemies refer to you as idolaters. Christians in the first century were actually referred to as cannibals. We took the Lord's Supper this morning. (laughs) They were referred to or slandered as cannibals. Enemies of God refer to Christians by all manner of degrading and demeaning names. But Jesus says, I'll give you my name. I'm going to write on you my name, the only name that matters. (laughs) All referring to the same name, the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, my new name. In other words, the Lord writing his name upon us is a reference to our full and complete identification with Christ. We are his and he is ours. Full communion, full security forever. And listen, We're going to bear that name then, but we bear his name now, don't we? We've taken upon ourselves his name now. We're not to take upon us his name in vain. We bear his name then, we bear his name now. We are citizens of that city then, but brothers, we're also citizens of that city now. Listen to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22. Paul says, but you have come to Mount Zion. You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. We're citizens of that city. We've been given that inheritance. It's reserved for us laid up there for us. It will not go away. It will not fade away. It's not perishable. And one day, our citizenship there will be consummated. 
when the city descends as a bride adorned for her husband? Or what are we to do in light of these things? Think of the inheritance that we have. All that's been given, the blessings, the tremendous blessings that flow to us through the person and work of Jesus Christ, our Savior, the one who has gone before us, our forerunner, the captain of our salvation, made perfect through sufferings, the one who's not ashamed to call us brothers. What are we to do? How are we to respond to these things? That is the hope of the church. What are we to do? We're to hold fast. We can't throw in the towel. You can't compromise with sin on this side of that age. We can't betray the Lord who bought us. We can't allow sin to derail us. We can't allow fear of man to silence us. We can't allow compromise to stunt our growth or to stunt our testimony. Hold fast what you have. And the Lord says, I'll preserve you. I'm not going to leave you or forsake you. I'm with you to the end of the age. <laughs> and we will dwell in the city of God forever. Look at Revelation 22. Revelation 22. We'll close with this. Revelation 22, verse 1. John, in a vision writes, and he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore 12 fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, His name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no light there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. Then he said to me, these words are faithful and true. And the Lord God, the holy prophet, sent his angel to show his servants the things which must shortly take place. Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps or observes or heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. Even so, be coming, Lord Jesus. Amen. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Pray with me. Father in heaven, Lord, we eagerly anticipate your soon return. We are those who are waiting and watching, Lord. We're not sons of darkness such that that day will overtake us as a thief, but we are sons of the light by your grace. You have made us sons of light. You have caused us to walk in the daylight of your revelation and we are grateful, Lord, that you've revealed yourself to us in these ways, that you've revealed yourself to us in your word. You've given us great hope and consolation. Uh, that you are the one who strengthens us through trial. You are the one who is with us through suffering, through tribulation. You're the one who comes to help, comes to our help in, the, in our time of need. 
Lord, you are the one who preserves us to the end. And we look to you in faith, trusting you, knowing, believing, persuaded that you're able to keep that deposit of me that we've committed to you until that day. And so help us, Lord, to obey you in the charge to persevere. Help us, Lord, strengthen us to endure to the end. Uh, Find us faithful and watching, waiting and working and serving and laboring, striving. Help us, Lord, as we serve you in this age with eager anticipation of the age to come. And may you be glorified uh, to find your servants so doing when you come. We love you. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.